The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by caretaker of chickens, extractor of cider, and bona fide state and local fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And I just want to say I have found this season that less is more when managing a fantasy football team. Indeed, indeed. And we uh, <laughs> we, we we have we have talked about some future episodes on. Uh, gambling and the role of gambling in state and local public finance. And so it sounds like you might have uh, uh, some vested interest in, in that, or at least one, one potentially have some vested interest in that. Yeah. I think the key is don't pay attention that much and don't care and your team's going to do great. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the golden formula right there. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So uh, today we're talking, uh, continuing to talk, I should say, about the relationship between uh, the changing nature of work in the state and local government sector and what that means for state and local public finance. And we're going to be joined uh, a little bit later here by Burke Attila, who is the director of the Department of General Services for the city of Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, prior to that, in his current role and prior to that, he's done lots of interesting work rolling out work from home infrastructure on behalf of state and local employees and has a lot of thoughts on what that means for how we should think about the types of assets that state and local governments ought to own, what it means for economic and community development and all kinds of other knock-on effects. And so we're thrilled to have that discussion. To set that up, we wanted to share some of the things that Liz and I both have been working on in this space at the intersection of work from home and state and local public finance. And Liz, you've definitely uh, have been really busy in this space over the last couple months. When you think about the highlights of all that you've had to say about it uh, relative to what we're talking about today, what comes to mind? Yes, we, we've talked about work from home a few times now on this show. And I, I think that one of the topics that continues to fascinate me because I don't know the answer is what downtowns will look like 10 years from now, 15 years from now. And it's interesting to me because early on in the pandemic, you know, you had a lot of people saying downtowns are dead, they're going to die. And then as things started coming back, you know, the, the pushback on that narrative happened. And we keep, I hear it often both ways that downtowns are going to come back to what exactly what they used to be before the pandemic. And then, and then people who believe that downtowns will never be the same. And, and I, the truth has got to be somewhere in the middle, but cities are looking at how many buildings they own and what to do with downtown office space 
you know, what's going to happen to their daytime population, how much of that is going to be, you know, continue to dwindle. So there's, there, there's really no permanence here yet in terms of how remote work is impacting what cities look like during the day. And I think it continues to be one of the really, really challenging things for policymakers and planners in particular, uh, who are trying to adapt to this environment. And, and when we still don't really know how much of this is gonna change in the next five to 10 years. For sure. It touches on so many different things that we care about in state and local finance. Just like you were saying, there's there's the question of what kinds of assets should governments themselves have in terms of both physical and infrastructure assets, but just more generally, what does it mean to have a revenue portfolio that reflects where commerce actually happens and where economic activity is is happening and ought to be captured? And, and then a whole other series of questions about what kind of infrastructure do you as a state or local government need to be providing to support whatever that future of economic and community development looks like? You know, I think there's another really interesting piece of this too that we've started to look at a bit, which is the what we're talking about here is a lot of the long-term effects. There's a lot of kind of near-term and intermediate-term effects here as well. And we've done a little bit of work at the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago looking at some of these questions through the eyes of investors. One thing we've developed is a series of indices, bond indices that track investors' perceptions of individual jurisdictions. So you can go out and see how are the city of Chicago's bonds trading at any given moment? How are the city of Boston's bonds trading? And you can get an idea of whether investors are sort of bearish or bullish about the outlook for a particular jurisdiction. And that's kind of a five to 10 year sort of a horizon uh, when most of those bonds are, are either going to, to to come due or are going to be traded in, in one way, shape or form. And one of the things that, that we've looked at as of late is how that uh, investor perceptions track or don't track with some of the trends that you've talked about, concentrations of work from home, uh, the makeup of local economies and, the, and those sorts of things. And one of the things that we found consistently, at least over the last few months, is that the places that do have real exposure to the work from home dynamic, you look at places like Boston, San Francisco, greater DC, those are the places that investors are also the most uh, sour about, the, the least optimistic about. And in some ways, it's a little bit tricky because in the current market, to be uh, to be positive about a city means that you're really just less negative about a city. We've had uh, <laughs> with with the state of the municipal market over the last nine months or so, it's really just a question of whose whose bonds are the least uh, unattractive, you know, in, in some ways, just <laughs> given what's been happening. But that said, the places that uh, among the, particularly among large cities, <clears throat> places where investor sentiment has really been down are a lot of the places that we're talking about here. And so I think that it's a little bit early to to draw any kind of a definitive conclusion, but there's definitely a correlation there. And I think there probably is something to the notion that there's just a lot of uncertainty about what some of these downtown cores are going to look like, especially in the high-priced coastal areas, especially in places where you have tech economies and a lot of white-collar employees where those jobs are, are very portable. And I, I think all of that taken into account, a lot of investors right now are saying, let's take kind of a wait and see approach uh, on some of those jurisdictions, as opposed to places like, say, Chicago, uh, uh, the Metroplex, places like that, where there's a, maybe a broader, more diversified economy. There's some work from home, but not nearly as much as other places. 
real estate isn't nearly as expensive. And so there's the ability to kind of be flexible and adapt to different types of uses, all those things that have impacts on what kinds of revenue collections you can expect, what kinds of infrastructure investments you'll need to make. And so it's in some ways it's already happening. We're already seeing some of that feedback from the market. And a lot of it, I think, is very closely tied to a lot of these sort of work from home trends and the implications of work from home. That is really, really fascinating. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Burke Attila, who is the Director of the Department of General Services for the City of Baltimore. Uh, somebody who's doing some really, really interesting work at the intersection of human capital, capital budgeting, work from home, public finance, lots of topics that we'd like to talk about here on the pod. So we're pleased to have him here. Welcome, Burke. Great to see you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Burke, I'm uh, also very excited to have you because you and I have had several conversations in the past where we just, uh, you know, talk a lot about work from home and the future of work. And I always get energized by what you say and your ideas. And um, I want to rewind a little bit because you, when we first met, you were the uh, HR director for Montgomery County, and now you're back in Baltimore. But uh, I'd like for you to kind of talk a little bit about the work from home rollout in, in Montgomery County. And as in, at least in, in my recollection, you were one of the few counties that was really being intentional about it and very and really official at the time you rolled out a lot of places were working on their pandemic work from home policies. So can you tell me how that went for you all? Of course. Um, well, <clears throat> it was an interesting surprise for me to deal with COVID within the six months um, of my appointment as the, the director of HR for Montgomery County. COVID welcomed us. I have to give credit to the, the infrastructure readiness at the time for Montgomery County's IT universe. Uh, it allowed us to be able to really look at who actually can do work remotely. And we didn't have to really go through this IT modernization for us to be able to allow that portion of the rollout. Because uh, most jurisdictions, they didn't embrace cloud maybe as far advanced as Montgomery County at the time. We were already in the uh, office universe where we were somewhat utilizing teams, collaboration. Most of our documents were on the cloud that allowed for people to be able to work from remotely, which is kind of the posture from what's happening in the ransomware world. Uh, Montgomery County prepped itself to be able to be more cloud forward. That was in itself was a blessing in disguise for us to be able to then say, if you can work, you should work remotely. That decision came very fast with the, I guess we woke up and understood that the government will not be able to stop its services. We will still have to provide services, but we will not be able to bring the people to work at the same time. So that provided a very quick challenge for us to solve. And everybody came to the same conclusion that any, any work that can be done should be done remotely. Um, we were very intentional about it. We engaged with our unions and then we, we said that number one thing is employee safety. As a, a cabinet, as the senior team management, uh, the leadership quickly understood that we will dispatch folks to their homes with, with laptops and with access to uh, whatever the system that they might have. But we want, didn't want to give them 
just the order to work from home, but we wanted to also uh, provide some sort of a training and tools and skill set for them to be able to really understand how to securely collaborate on um, documents, team, Teams meetings, where to use Zoom, where to use Teams, what is an appropriate thing for a call, audio call, video call, the etiquette in the video call, and how we're going to go around this. So uh, we we collaborated as the um, HR director with the CIO, uh, Gail Roper in Montgomery County. She took on all of the infrastructural detail of making sure that everybody is safe, sound, secure in terms of accessing information, and we made sure that the the people are safe. It continues to do so. A good example is that I would always say. Within the two, every beginning of the pay period, we do employee onboarding. It was impossible for us to be able to onboard new employees now with the new reality. However, there was not an option not to onboard people. We need to hire more people to deal with the problems. So within two weeks, all teams came together to figure out a way of virtual onboarding, which kind of showed us the, the grit that we can rely on internally, because I always say this. As an HR director, if I had told my people that you have two weeks to completely eliminate in-person onboarding and then turn it into a virtual onboarding and then you start on the next go-around, it would have never happened. We would have all of these cognitive dissonance reasons why we cannot do it, but we use what we call a disaster economy where we got dealt with some cards and then we used to our best advantage. And what really helped us was bringing those bright spots into what we can achieve and show others and then fail forward mentality. Let's try something else. If it works, we continue. If it doesn't work, we'll come back to the drawing board. When you all rolled out like a year or two into the pandemic, Montgomery County officially you know, established its remote work policy. Can you tell me about the challenges there? And, and was there any pushback in, in not going back to how things had always been? All, all of the above. There were a lot of challenges. There, were, there, there was pushback, um, obviously. And uh, most of the people that are tele teleworking or what is about the telework um, was in the union union health positions. So we couldn't do this without their help and without their understanding. Luckily, we agreed on our interest, employee safety, as well as future way of uh, attracting and retaining employees to provide services. So the biggest challenge was to decide whether or not we're going to do this experiment and learn from it and then have a policy or legitimize it with a policy and then, then come back to the drawing board if it's not working. So that was the biggest decision. And I think Montgomery County has done a great job in that regard to do the policy officially that we, we are going to adapt this new way of work. We're gonna tie that to the work that is being done. And we got the, the union support with us to, to develop the plan so that we could formalize something. But in return, that allowed us to be able to now build actual applications that allowed us to be able to track payroll codes. In return, we could see the utilization, then we were able to tie, tie that all to, okay, this group is working X many hours remote, this many personnel working remotely, but let's look at the outcome of the deliverables of this work. Challenge was old school versus new school management and leadership. People have their calcified ways of working and then they only think that people do their work most effectively if you're uh, seen by your manager or your manager sees you. But there are multiple, multiple success stories even that because COVID didn't allow us to do this for just two weeks and get back. It really sequestered us for about two years. So I have seen many people that might consider 
as old school mentality that I need to see my employees to work with. In a year, it's like, oh my God, I am doing much better. So I am now have changed my opinion as to how, how this is going to roll out. And the law department was one of the very early examples. They tracked their data. They were first, I need that serendipitous relationship with my litigation people, solicitors. I need to see them. I need to ask about them, but they couldn't do it. But they continued to track their performance. And then at a year after, everybody came in and said, it's like, well, actually, our, our turnaround times for document review litigation is everything is better. There's nothing against that this is not working except we always maintained the coaching and mentorship idea. So we gave the ability to the departments to create intentional get gatherings rather than you need to be in the office for X many days, but we focused on why behind you need to be here and focus that to employee development. So all of that was possible for us to, to lead it in a 10,000 plus organization with a formal policy. Without the policy, there's no structure, it's chaos. I'm curious, I'd like to transition now to talk about Baltimore um, because there are so many, particularly you know, going from county to a, to a large city, there are so many different kinds of implications to think about with, with remote work. And from an infrastructure level, what kinds of things are you thinking about and, and looking at in Baltimore when it comes to how remote work is or isn't shaping downtown there? So... It's, it's challenging, to be honest with you. Now that I go to the office once and twice, uh, but what I realize is downtown after COVID is struggling to come back, especially just the, the places um, that are fueled by the lunch crowds or the happy hour people that leave, um, leave those offices. You could see that the remote work with the pandemic had its impact on it. So that really makes it hard for the administrations to, to be very specific about like everybody needs to to remote work because you provide as a government entity as an anchor tenant in in your communities you provide some some fuel for life that that it is there um i don't think that we've yet solved um we're still we're still learning uh how to do those and we don't want to own this is not working just because the government employees are not there rather we're trying to do this we want to understand five days a week everyone on hands in the offices is not gonna be the, the future of any organization. And we can spend time why that's not the case, but this is, this is our reality. I think everybody accepted it. So how can we use this now to create intentionality where we focus the people? We're spread. So do we need to be that spread? Sometimes you need to be in communities, but there's a lot of administrative work that is spread among multiple buildings that now we have to maintain heat, fuel, security, elevators, inspection, all that needs to happen. But when we look at the utilization for now in Baltimore City, it's very low. It's about 25% or so of the people that can remotely work. I mean, even in the, the if you look at a building's cost just for money's purposes, the highest cost is the utility of the building, if you look at that, heating and cooling of the building. I'm not even talking about maintaining the systems, I'm talking about straight up utility is a high cost. And it comes on the back of some sort of a probably, some combination of sustainable and unsustainable uh, renewable energy in there. So sustainability comes in, if we're gonna retrofit our new, new spaces, let's make it through more sustainable ways and then re reduce our burden on the grid by getting rid of our space. 
that that is a, a very very high calling for me. It doesn't solve immediate problems, but it is very appetizing for budget people because they can see, oh, okay, I can actually reduce my operating budget on the utility side by X percent permanently without, and then I can uh, and I can use some of those monies to retrofit my whatever leftover buildings to use less. And I am pretty sure with the infrastructure bill and then the the, the whole idea of looking into funding more grants like this, the organizations can articulate better than others, they will get more grants funding and uh, and money coming in coming their way because they're adding a different portion and element to why they need the money, not just like building solar, um, but how we're gonna use use that. Are there any surprising, I mean, with, I don't wanna say with all these empty buildings, but with buildings that will be emptied, what's gonna happen to them? And, and really, are there any surprising uh, uses being considered for for some of this space. This this is the the the, the hard question to to answer. We're in in the city of Baltimore. We're working with our um, Baltimore Development Corporation (BDC) um, to to understand which areas, without giving them any idea, there there is um, request for development. What developers? Which developers are knocking on doors in what neighborhoods? What do they see? Then we're trying to to understand what buildings that we might have there. But maybe one thing that we need to think now is, do we need to have a library and a rec center and a fireplace and a police? Can we be more intentional about consolidating some of these? I'm not talking about putting a library and a police station together, but public safety facilities can be grouped maybe. And then maybe you could have a rec center, a, a community center and a library together. So we could reduce the number of roofs and doors and units that need to be taken care of. And then we could be more specific where we are gonna be. And then whatever we're not gonna use, we hope that the developers will show interest, but we need to be very intentional about where we're making those decisions so that we're not creating left, like a chunks of buildings in, let's say um, undervalued or underappreciated communities. So we don't want to double down on that. So it's quite important to to make sure that equity lenses um, from the neighborhood standpoint, looking at those buildings, if we make surplus decisions. So if somebody comes and tells us we're interested in, in this area and development, we would be able to quickly figure out how to, to surplus that area. We're going to move these people into this place. We're going to pay the private lease. We don't want to do the work when when it comes up because the, the opportunity is going to pass so we want to start that work around understanding what's their portfolio the conditions of the portfolio where it might be an interest where it might be underfunding and then have a a cataloging almost like an approaching in terms of an asset management then we could make capital decisions over six years okay we're gonna not gonna mean we're not gonna make this building uh, a brand new building we're just going to maintain it because if somebody buys it, they're probably going to knock it down for a different use. Or we want to maintain at least a little bit value because there is um, historical things attached to this building. So they're not going to be able to redevelop it. So there's value in us keeping the building at certain condition because that would increase the price. But if you're going to knock it down, you don't care how good the roof is as a developer. So those are the things that we also trying to understand. You know, let's say, we want to get rid of an old courthouse. Can that be rebuilt? Probably not. So that you have to have a different approach to a surplus school where it can be knocked down and build a new mall. So 
if you don't start cataloging the conditions, the, the proper zoning, the uses, what kind of interest might be out there now, it, you're going to be overwhelmed when the time comes and everybody looking at DGS and everybody has to give answers. So that's what we see that our next level of work is going to be in that space. And then we're trying to align ourselves to, to be ready so that we can be lucky when the time comes. Can you envision going even beyond that? We're talking here about buildings in particular as a slice of the infrastructure that you all are are maintaining. We think about the future of work, not just for Baltimore City employees, but just for people generally in the region. Uh, can you envision any other kinds of infrastructure that you might be thinking differently about how you're maintaining, whether you own it at all? Because uh, it seems to touch on so much of what we do in capital budgeting writ large, not just government-owned buildings, but all of our infrastructure. This is a big, big question about should you own or lease, right? And I see that as a, a multi-step problem. What might be most important right now is an intermediate step in between, which is if I were to surplus a building and I'm not ready because of my whatever reason that consolidate all of the other three buildings into one because I have outstanding questions. Do I wait until surplusing and scaling down until I have all of the answers? Or do I reconsider my position to, to go to least space in the downtown area where we might fill up some of those much needed vacancies in the office buildings while I give myself a break um, from the maintenance cost and then the capital obligation of that building and not the burden to build something first to move them in. So that way I can put my capital obligation in a linear format rather than stacked. Because what I mean by stacked is I would still need to maintain the building while I'm building a new one. That means I might need to do twice the capital because I still need to do mm -hmm. the capital work that you're in while I'm building a new one. That might be a, a burden on my um, borrowing authority, might impact my um, actual bond rating, whereas leasing cost is an operating item may not go against it. So not to get too technical in the finance terms, it really allows us to be able to get out of this building, reconsider your space needs so that when we go to a public place or a, I'm a private lease or a, maybe a space that we freed up for you, we put that lens. Do you need this much space? You are a people of three. Do you need three offices? Can you get by one if you rotate it? So look at that move them into an already freed up space in the, the government-owned area or move them to a private lease while you're getting rid of that building, you could use the sales proceeds to now to maybe reconfigure the, the space that you are going to keep to consolidate. So, And that model, in my opinion, could work because I believe downtown commercial real estate business could get support from us moving into that space also. It sounds like these are, are questions that every empty nester asks too when they're thinking of downsizing. You know, should I buy? Should I lease? Should I sell and use the money I made to, you know, do a renovation? A lot of uh, uh, parallels to, to downsizing. And it sounds, sounds like in, the, in one sense, that's what the city of Baltimore and, and most governments across the country right now, especially major cities, are dealing with is, you know, there's there's empty chairs at the table, and um, what are we gonna? How are we gonna rearrange things to maximize our our economy again? And I know that from the employee standpoint, if you call someone into the office, but you're in a rotating schedule, they are still in the office, but their coworkers that are not in the office. 
And then most people work outside of their divisions and departments interagency. So there's no synchronized way of everybody coming in because if you everyone be on the same day, that means just like you have a peak demand, so you're not freeing up any space. So it's a very much of a paradox where the only way to be able to scale down is some sort of rotation. Once you introduce that rotation into the equation, that means some people are going to be on-site, some people are going to be remote. And then the worst meeting scenario is some people are in the, in the room together and some people are on the, the wall. So we do not want that because that's side conversations do happen against all of your good intentions. So one, one of the things that we say no, no, is if somebody is remote, I think the remote, the, the meeting should be remote. So what you are creating now as a result is that you call people into the office but they're exactly doing what they're doing as if they're in their homes. So the, the idea from the, the old school management is just like we need to be together to build camaraderie, we need to create mentorship, is not happening because it's completely against the, the scaling down. So that's, that's a hard pill for every leadership to swallow to come to that reality because you cannot have both. That's unfortunate. That's the hard part for everyone to make that decision is okay, we're, if we're going to scale down, we're not going to be together all the time. And that requires a good collaboration for each unit to be thinking about their work and bringing their people on a different reason. Maybe the leadership comes together every odd month, twice to, to be together to do things, not to do their regular work. So we do need to think about how we work. It's not just like where we work also. That, that's the, the next challenge. As we starting to scale down, I think departments and the leaders are going to have to think about how we can create intentionality coming together while we're not creating a burden for, for the scaled down physical space. Fun work, but a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, well, I would imagine too, I mean, going back to the original point about IT and uh, information systems generally, you know, those kinds of asset management uh you know, questions and, and just getting the information and all that, uh, way more manageable now with the kinds of technology we have available than even say five years ago. Right? And then, so it's, in some ways it's just, uh, putting to, to better use the tools that you have now to answer exactly those kinds of sophisticated asset management questions. Sounds like a challenge, but also a tremendous opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and I'll give you a very quick example of how that of simple information about teleworking can help me on, on facilities planning. So if everybody's telework application is on an electronic platform where it's queryable, not on a PDF, but in an electronic platform where I know uh, Liz has two days of, of telework on Mondays and Tuesdays. And I know because of the active directory where she's located at, which department, which division, what position she holds, I have all that information now that can be merged. So what I can do is just say, give me all Monday people in the downtown core, right? How many people are asking for Monday? Downtown core has, let's say 100 seats, hypothetically, and 100 people are working on Monday. That's the problem. Like, why is that? We can ask that question. Then we can go to the payroll and then ask them to just like, submit every time they telework, not only reserve in the system a, an actual office space that we would know that what's the utilization of reserving, but some people may not reserve it, but I know that they would at least put their time card code teleworking so now i can see of all the people who have telework applications how many of them actually work in how many days whatnot by building by unit so i can click those reports really quickly 
and then you see a utilization that's an objective utilization over the last two to three years, right? Okay, like in this building, pick a building, City Hall. How many people have teleworking applications? Thousand people, there's 3000 seats there. So one third is teleworking. How many days they're in the office? Once a day. So how can we rotate them? What does that mean? So all of that data now is available to us to just like run modeling scenarios, answer questions, look at the things that we didn't think about. So if somebody's starting their journey, I would tell them, don't miss that opportunity. Take the time to create yourself a, a platform where you can query your teleworking personnel and gather all that information. You might not think that is valuable right now, but in two months it will be. So don't miss that critical step. Very interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. Well, thank you very, very much to Bergatilla for sharing some excellent thoughts. We appreciate you taking the time to, to join us here on the Public Money Pod. Thank you so much again for having me here. I'm very glad to be able to share what I've learned and what I'm planning to do with, with our listeners. And I hope that they learn something or, or maybe I've provoked an idea in, in, in their um, journey for future of work and teleworking. I'm sure you have. Well, thanks again to Burke Attila for joining us here on the Public Money Pod to talk about the fascinating intersection of work from home, state and local government, human capital needs, infrastructure, public-private partnerships, all kinds of things that are touching on issues that we talk about here on the pod all the time. So we're thrilled to have his perspective. So as always, uh, it's time now for listener questions for our extra credit segment. And uh, this week's question has to do with free transit. Hello, this is Alex from Chicago, big fan of the Public Money Pod. My question is about public transportation and why more state and local governments do not pay for free public transportation for their citizens. Thanks so much. Well, that is an Excellent question and uh, kind of an obvious one when you stop to think about it. I think it fits in really nicely with a lot of what we've talked about uh, here today with respect to getting people to come back downtown and making it easier for uh, folks who, when they need to travel, uh, to travel and, and maybe giving people reasons to travel to places that they might not otherwise travel. And it would seem that making it uh, free to get on a train or a bus or, or a streetcar would be a good way to do that. Uh, Liz, thoughts uh, initially on free public transit? Yeah, this is something I've, I've touched on in my writing about remote work and pandemic and cities. And it is certainly something that more places are talking about and, and in some cases implementing uh, during and post pandemic. And largely because the pandemic showed us how much of an equity issue this is. The folks that could not work remotely, that had to show up for work. A lot of them did take public transit and a lot of them were part of vulnerable populations that were more, um, more likely to have um, adverse in impacts if they got sick. And so this idea of transit as a public service really started becoming elevated. And there are some places that do offer free transit the Kansas City is one. It's on uh, some like city buses. They offer free transit, and also the new new-ish Kansas City, city streetcar. It's like a, a two-mile track that goes to the heart of downtown. That is also free to ride. That was a policy decision made before the pandemic, 
I know that some places have looked to that to try to, uh, you know, kind of copy that example. But what the biggest reason why, you know, like New York City, Washington, D.C., why Chicago, why transit is not free there is because they just can't afford it. These cities are already putting a lot of money into these systems. By no means do these fares cover the full cost. And so to take away that fair revenue in the hopes of that ridership would, would increase and transit would become a, a major public service, that's, it's a really big gamble that a lot of major cities can't afford to take. Uh, buses are different. Operating costs are much lower. But in large part, when we think public transit, we think of those long commutes on rail into the city that it's, it's simply unaffordable at this point for cities to, to cover all the costs. Yeah, excellent points. And and it does raise kind of that much bigger question then of the the overall what we might call kind of operating paradigm of public transit historically, which has been to to move people within a region, particularly if you're commuting to downtown from an outlying neighborhood or from the suburbs, uh, or to get to uh, major shopping districts or other retail core or entertainment core areas from uh, wherever it might be to to try to discourage people from driving downtown for instance and it's, that's that was a fine way to think about the goal of transit but now in a world where not everybody's coming to work downtown and where entertainment options might look and feel very different and retail shopping options might look and feel very different it does raise that question of how do you build out or where and or how should you build out a transit system to meet whatever the new needs are. And then how do you finance that that kind of a transit system? We have seen a little bit along those lines in uh, places that have, have really kind of seriously looked at the way that transit systems can play a role as a real estate developer, uh, using a lot of the land on or near the rights of way that they operate, thinking a little bit differently about what it means to leverage some of those assets and in ways that might help to both finance the transit system itself, but also create and maybe spurs some economic development and community development in places that haven't been getting it. Uh, certainly here in Chicago, there's been a lot of discussion about using uh, certain kinds of transit investments as catalysts for neighborhood development and redevelopment. And uh, as you were saying, was kind of calibrating fares uh, to reflect some of those equity concerns, making sure that certain lines that serve certain neighborhoods are paying full fare or even more than full fare. And then certain lines serving other neighborhoods that might be historically underserved, having discounted or even free fares. And I think just as you were saying, pre-COVID, that might have been a difficult a difficult policy proposition. Post-COVID, now that everybody sees those types of disparities in, in plain view, maybe it's a little bit more palatable and it might make for a, a very different way of thinking about the, the relationship between what we pay per ride for transit relative to how we pay for and use transit systems as a public policy and public finance goal in and of themselves. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. 
To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.